ready? Yeah. Feeling good, Sam? Sam Deegan. I'm feeling tired. You're a film historian. You can't feel tired. <laughs> Does it make any sense? It does make sense. Welcome to Twitch of the Death Nerve, a cult movie podcast that takes a deep dive into a different film each episode. Our wide-ranging discussions will touch on genre, culture, and the history of psychotronic cinema. I'm Charles. I'm Sam. I'm John. And we're hyped for today's episode. It's it's one that's been simmering for for quite some time, and right now kind of feels like the perfect moment for it. In the last couple weeks, the three of us have been thinking more critically about some of the more political and social issues that a lot of the exploitation movies we've covered seem to touch on. I mean, it's come up in our our Candy Snatchers episode, uh, and more recently in our discussion on Dangerous Encounters of the First Kind. Because often the characters, uh, they turn to petty crime or something akin to juvenile delinquent brand of terrorism. Basically, it seems like a lot of these films have no trouble pointing out the problems with society, the injustices within capitalism and colonialism, and and who the enemies of social progress are. But one area where these films seem to pull their punches and offer little to say is how does one confront these structures of power and actually enact real change? How does one organize enough people to overthrow an entire system? How do you go about toppling a powerful and violent regime like the U.S. government? And those questions and more, I think, are answered in Ivan Dixon's radical and incredibly inspiring 1973 film, The Spook Who Sat by the Door. The Spook Who Sat by the Door. The controversial best-selling novel now becomes a shocking screen reality. The story of the first black agent in the CIA. Whoever they select will be the best-known spy since 007. Their first mistake was letting him in. And let me congratulate you on being the first Negro officer in the Central Intelligence Agency. Their worst mistake was letting him out. Really want to mess with Whitey? I can show you. For five years, he was their token Negro. Freeman, you people must serve. For five years, he kept his cool. Man, you just don't belong. I think you'd be happier with a mop in your hands. Like your mama. And in return, they taught him how to spy. How to fight. How to kill. For five years, he was the spook who sat by the door. And then, he turned gangs of ghetto kids into a highly trained guerrilla army. We live off the land. We match technology with spontaneity and improvisation. Men against machines, brains against computers. Now, if you don't think it can work, you check out Algeria, Kenya, Korea, and Iran. Can you dig it? He turned a summer riot into a revolution. This is not about hate white folks. It's about love and freedom enough to die or kill for it if necessary. He turned the American dream into a nightmare. Yesterday, 
a novel. Today, a movie. The spook who sat by the door. And Mayor's office is now air-conditioned, courtesy of the Black Freedom Fighters of Chicago. So basically to prepare for this episode, we had ourselves a, a Black Power triple feature that was curated for very specific reasons. Uh, these movies are obviously often classified as black exploitation, but I feel like these are very, very different films and are outliers within the genre for reasons I'm sure we will get into. Uh, the films we're going to touch on before, you know, ultimately culminating in our deeper discussion on The Spook Who Sat by the Door are Christopher St. John's underrated 1972 film Top of the Heap and Mario Van Peebles' classic groundbreaking film Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. And even though Sweet Sweetback is often credited as the film whose widespread popularity helped kick off the whole black exploitation subgenre, I think we should first take a look at top of the heap um melvin van Peebles. did i say mario yeah mario's His masterpiece son. is uh jaws four. Oh no and i fucked highlander up highlander three. Oh yes yes i haven't seen the highlander movies but jaws four is a master have you seen the movie that he made about the making of sweet sweet no, Back? badass no, I, no, it's really really good it's it's so cool he plays his dad and like it's like a black exploitation movie about the making of a black exploitation movie that was done uh, probably like well over a decade ago now. It's 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 really fun. Thanks for catching me on on that. I'm not repeating this. Okay. Kind of spiel. Okay. I didn't know if you were gonna. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. No. We'll just keep this into. I mean, to be fair, Mario Van Peebles is in the movie. He sure is. <laughs> yes. Yes. He sure is. Uh, but but first off, uh, top of the heap. This movie came at your recommendation, John. Uh, how did you how did you come across it? Uh, one night, I was at my girlfriend's house. I was kind of drunk, and I was looking for something to put on to watch for like 20 minutes before I passed out. And I turn on Tubi. There's like a little section. I think it was like the black exploitation section. And I see this post, and I was like, okay, top of the heap. This looks cool. I didn't even read the description. So I'm thinking this is going to be like a cool, badass, fucking something like Trouble Man. And I watch it, and within like 10, 15 minutes, it's like, oh no, this is something completely fucking different. And uh, I watched it all the way through, and I was like, this is angry, surreal. This isn't, you know, some kind of like fantasy movie. This is. Yeah. This, the surreal stuff is really what I think set it apart. And just the whole tone in general. I mean,. The thing that I find so amazing about like these these movies in particular that we're talking about today, but with things like Top of the Heap, there's this shift that happens in the late 60s and early 70s where you start to get black directors and writers making the movies that they want to make and not necessarily things that they feel like they have to do to get Hollywood's interest and like breaking like I feel like you know if you watch Top of the Heap now and you didn't really understand the context it might not seem as groundbreaking but like the idea that even 
15, 20 years before this, most black actors were forced into these like awful stereotype roles and there were never interesting characters or rarely. And so to have somebody like uh, Christopher St. John make what's basically a super depressing, surreal, independent movie where he just is like obviously doing whatever he wants like it feels like this movie is for him oh it's for sure it's Uh, it's, it's such a personal movie and but it was frustrating it was frustrating to me because it was a movie about someone who is not likable at all in their in their life because he plays uh, a cop he's this black guy who's a cop who doesn't really get much respect from the police that he's in because he's, you know, a black guy. And he doesn't get any respect from his his black peers because he's a fucking pig. And he's just, like, angry the whole time and taking out these frustrations on everyone around him who is at least, like, even the people that are, like, so nice to him. And the only times that he's ever relatable or or when you can kind of understand his thinking and the reasons why he's the way he is is in these super surreal scenes where he's daydreaming about being uh, an astronaut on the moon and it's like so weird these sequences but they like really make the movie so unique i think him being unlikable is one of the reasons i like the movie though like that's something that 70s movies would do that's kind of lost now is they'll make a movie about somebody you don't like and humanize them, but without making excuses for them. Yeah, or sentimentalizing it. Yeah. I think that's also one of the things I really like about it, because if you consider somebody in this scenario, and even this movie aside, I think in fiction, in films, often in life, the people who try super hard to fit in to who are ambitious and who are trying to do what they think is the right thing on a professional level are not very likable because they're just like trying to follow this path and it's like his idea of being a good person is basically to get this police promotion and like it's clear that he's really good at his job and he's smart and he keeps passing this test And they keep telling him, oh, when another promotion opens up, you should apply again. But it's clear that he's just like on the white supremacy hamster wheel that he will never get off of. Yeah. And it's it's such a depressing film because ultimately the thesis, I, I think, is that it is a dead end path for for people of color to want to assimilate into white society, that that is just a trap to keep them from actually achieving freedom. This movie kind of shows that, like, this is not the way to get freedom, which is kind of why I think it's a good first feature in our little, like, I guess, triple feature, because it states what not to do and, like, what and shows what some of, like, the problems in society are uh, for people of color. And that's what I kind of figured all the astronaut daydreaming was, was him like exploring a world that he does not belong in and, and kind of realizing it. Yeah. Of the heat, written by and starring Christopher St. John. Uh, 
Ain't gonna be no days like that. You're gonna have to shoot me right in my face, Mr. Black Pig. His rage was the illness of the times. Me! I just got back from a trip to the moon! Hassled by his soul brothers, with his mother dying, he can only escape to the moon. In, in a weird way, it reminded me of that whole, and like this is a recent thing, not uh, not so much a 70s problem, that whole issue with feminists trying to assimilate into white supremacy capitalism is like that the, like the, the, the girl, girl boss, boss shit. culture. Yeah, oh, for sure. Like for that sure. idea that the way that you can become part of the ruling class for lack of a better phrase is to join them yeah. yeah that that equality means you too can be an oppressor yes you achieve freedoms by being on the level of the people who deny freedoms to others and that's yeah that's part of the girl boss culture and i think that is ultimately what uh, top of the heap is about and it's it's and like everyone knows it but him Ev- almost uh, like I've been thinking about it pretty much constantly since we watched it. And it seems like in these really subtle ways, he has all these different interactions with people and they all know that what he's doing is just the wrong thing, but he doesn't see it. Yeah. And he's miserable. And this is so different from sweet, sweet back, which is, came out one year before top of the heap and so is this true that sweet sweetback is the first movie that's like credited as being a black exploitation movie is it or or what no i think the the term was actually coined like a few years later but it's the one that started that it's like generally said like this is the first one it's like film noir. It, you know, it started going and it took critics a couple of years to realize, oh, here's this trend. But I think Cotton Comes to Harlem is even a year or two before Sweet Sweet. Yeah, Back. I think that's 1970. So it's it's kind of arbitrary. Yeah, I, I, I think so, too. I think that the credit that it gets is just for popularizing this method of filmmaking that is very black very independent and just like doesn't take fucking shit and is like liberatory it is and it feels radical like it feels not like like that's why well i mean in fairness i think a lot of black exploitation movies live up to the term black exploitation where they're just made to cash in on that market that's, that's what i was about I, about yeah. to bring up okay. that that these movies that we're discussing they're not black exploitation movies. They're not exploitation movies. Well, Sweet Sweetback might be a bit of an exploitation movie uh, at times. I don't, I don't know. That might be the most like weird art house one. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think the art house and the exploitation, in my mind, uh, walk a very there's a there's yeah. a very small yeah. line. There's a lot of naked people them. in both. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Are you my man? You my favorite man. Can you take it, baby? But these don't feel like your standard black exploitation fare where they were cashing in. You could see the white hands behind the scenes and those movies that had much larger budgets as well. And these feel so different from them because I don't want to say they're like necessarily dangerous. Well, Spook Who Sat by the Door maybe 
is a little dangerous. Uh, well, clearly the FBI thought so at the yeah, time. I think yeah, it's we're, a we're bit there. more than a little, but yeah, we'll get yeah. there. But these movies are not for mainstream audiences, but they were so widely popular and people loved them. Especially, I'm talking about Sweet Sweet Back right now. That like that was a movie that people identified with and needed, you know, at that time because there was there were no depictions of like like black men in like taking back their lives in ways that were identifiable that weren't like your Sidney Poitier type, you know, sexless, yes, yeah, smiling I mean, guys. He's hot, but his characters yeah. were. They were always Very doing things clean cut to, and friendly and nice and for sure, the for non-threatening. Sure. Exactly, like white people love them. Hello. Yes, sir. I'm sorry to have gotten you involved in this. I, I really had no choice. Mm, yes. Oh, you can't be serious, sir. I mean, even if I could be of some help, they wouldn't want it. No, sir. I, I'm not prejudiced. Yes, sir. I, I'm a police officer, and they're police officers, but... Hello, Luce Gillespie. Yes, sir. Yep, well... You don't say... He's your number one homicide expert. Well, my, my, my. Well, I don't think we need any help, though. I think we can wrap this thing up ourselves. Yes, sir. But I, I do want to thank you for offering me such a powerful piece of manpower as Virgil Tibbs. Yes, sir, thank you. Yeah, goodbye now. The thing that I think sets his character apart from a lot of the black exploitation to follow is that in it, Melvin Van Peebles is like, yeah, he's got a giant dick and he's great at fucking. He's got but, a sweet, sweet back. Right. But he's not this like indestructible badass. He's just kind of a guy trying to live. And he doesn't fight people or do that like macho male posturing shit. And it's like when he gets into fights, the first and one of the only times you see him do it is to defend this uh, Black Panther who's getting beaten by the cops and he just happens to be there. And like the way he treats that Black Panther is it's like subtle but says so much about what kind of movie Van Peebles is trying to make like the scene where he could have escaped with the biker but he tells the Black Panther to go instead because of his political worth yeah it's like you don't really I, I feel like the the sort of exploitative like truly exploitative black exploitation movies that you're talking about that we also love and I think a lot of people love because they're so much fun. They really lean into those stereotypes. And a lot of the time they give you this sense that there's no escape from them. That like either you can be this cool ass cop type character or you can be a pimp or you can be some kind of organized crime guy who's exploiting his own community. But sweet, sweet back it's like there are some shades of that, but not really. It's just like, here are these people trying to live, and cops are fucking with them constantly. And I think that why this one, why Sweet Sweetback is a great prelude to a film like The Spooky Sat by the Door is because 
it's about one guy who basically like he 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 isn't taking shit from the cops and he fucking knocks him down and goes on the run and he's both supported and betrayed by his community in different scenes and moments and it's about just like you can feel the anger that that was internal to the one character in top of the heap just exploding out in this movie even though he even though Melvin Van Peebles keeps his fucking cool throughout it you can just see how fucking angry it's just it's such a great movie and it almost like gets you ready for the spook who sat by the door that at the end of the day at the end of sweet sweetback's badass song nothing is different or, or, well, or rather nothing socially on a large scale is different but it's not about that i know i'm not i'm not knocking it for that i'm just saying that like there's that warning that he's going to come back though yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. set him up for the sequel so the way that i think spook who sat by the door is kind of the next step a little bit is Unlike Top of the Heap and Sweet Sweetback, which are, like we've been saying, kind of surreal and personal and experimental, Spook Who Sat by the Door has these anti-establishment messages under the guise of being a more conventional kind of action movie. This was my first time seeing this. and I've Me always too. I've always heard about it, but like, I didn't know anything the history it's like, terrific i just thought i was like oh okay it's it was like in my head it was a black exploitation movie that was more serious and like no. i was half right yeah it's serious for sure <laughs> and i'm watching it and like the first like bit of it i'm like this is like a revenge fantasy this is about like a guy who's going to like get what he has to from the man and then turn the tables on him and then like halfway through it i was like Wait a minute. This is an instruction manual. And it reminded me, th there's only one other time I felt like this. I saw, I went to New York a few years ago and I saw, um, I don't know if I already said this on the show, but I saw a documentary there called Third World, Third World War. And it was Brazilian anarchists went to Vietnam and interviewed the VC during the whole Vietnam War. And they were showing shit like, how to like make weapons traps and but also in between there would be these interludes where like this is what factory in these in the states makes napalm and this is the address of this <laughs> and it was one of those yeah. things where like when i leave the theater there's going to be a guy in a car taking my picture and then i'm going to be like labeled a radical somewhere yeah and like and that then this movie gave me that same type of danger it's like oh my god i shouldn't be seeing for sure this. so for context the spook who sat by the door is a movie about uh basically it opens up with this uh senator who's running for re-election and he realizes that he's not going to win because he is like 1.8 percent down in the polls or something and they figure that it's the black vote that he's he's losing because he gave some law and order speech. And his wife suggests, well, why don't you come out and target the CIA for having discriminatory hiring processes? That they don't have any black people in the CIA. And he's like, oh, it's a great idea. So because he does this, the CIA then needs to, like, you know, make their image, their public image a little nicer. So they recruit like 50 people 
that are all black to be in the CIA. And the whole first act of the film is all of these recruits being wheedled, like whittled down to just one. And it was so interesting, this beginning bit, when, because I, I haven't seen the movie in a few years, I forgot which one of the recruits was like the one to make it, you know? And when it turns out to be this like meek man in glasses, who's just kind of quiet and fades into the background, it's like, oh, of course. Of course, this is the character who will be the titular spook. And, well, what happens is he basically gets sent down to the basement to be their top-secret confidential report area. He's, like, the reproduction manager. He just, like, scans He reports. runs the fucking copy machine. Yeah, that's what, what I was saying, yeah. He sits by the fucking copy machine all day. And then they, what they do is they basically it's like wheel him out when some senators come along to say, oh, hey, look at how diverse the CIA is. And he just, you know, is just in this little world. But they train him. They train him how to do guerrilla warfare tactics, how to make bombs, how to uh, establish a chain of command, and how to do all of these things that are the ways that the CIA overthrows governments. So he is trained to do all of these things and he sits there for five years and he does his time there and eventually he says, hey, you know, this isn't for me. I am going to go and be a social worker in Chicago. And he goes back to Chicago and takes all of this education with him and teaches, teaches the local gangs and the local people the future Black Panthers of America. Yeah, they're called the Freedom Fighters in this in this film to basically have a guerrilla war and how to set up these like cells and it's it's, it's magical. Awesome. And like it goes it's play by play too. Like yeah. he walks you through it as the narrative unfolds. It's and and it's exciting how much stuff happens that are not action scenes. Like, there's some great action scenes in this movie for sure. There's riots and there's, like, car explosions and there's, like, a scene where they they do a late-night raid on army barracks and they steal all of this fucking, all these guns and this army shit and it's a lot of great action scenes. But the most tense moments are when they're, like, explaining how to spread this to the next city. How to, like, this is what you're gonna do. And when he, like, sh like he takes one of the characters aside and he hands him a needle and they have like a big anti-heroin policy that no junkies are allowed in the freedom fighters. And he's like, Oh, why give me a needle? And he says, you, what you're going to do is you're going to poke your, you're going to stab yourself in the arm with this every week to give yourself track marks. So that way, anytime anyone comes along trying to, you know, see if you're in with the group, they're going to see your arm and they're going to say, oh, get the fuck out of here, junkie. And it's just like, it's brilliant stuff. It's brilliant tactics. And it's so inspiring. Yeah, there's this great line when he leads them in that uh, raid of the army barracks that you just mentioned. When they get back to one of their bases and they're starting to hide the weapons some of the younger members ask like, so what do we do now? Do we need to go underground? And he's like, no, they're expecting this job to be done by people who have education and imagination and intelligence, which is not us. Yeah. And they all laugh, but it's great because it's like they're using white supremacy against itself. Exactly. 
and like and that goes back to why the main character was hired by the CIA in the first place is because they needed a token and he was a radical to begin with and he knew that he could use that like oh they need some smiling token black guy to show up they use all of these or rather they weaponize the institutional like racism and and the ways that that like white people in power think against them and as their as a weapon and it's it's just yeah, that's how you fucking do it. That's how you overthrow governments. And, and the scene when they're making Molotov cocktails and they're like joking, like, we don't need you to show us how to fucking do this. Like, yeah. we know how to fucking pour gasoline a thing. And he explains to them, like, What's wrong with it? You're going to mess around like a high school chemistry class. Man, anybody can make explosives like this. Okay, Willie, you go order some plastic detonators from Marshall Fields. <laughs> Everything on this table can be obtained easily from a drugstore, a hardware store, or medical supplies. If we can get sophisticated equipment, we'll use it, but we don't rely on it. We live off the land. We match technology with spontaneity and improvisation. Men against machines, brains against computers. Now, if you don't think it can work, you check out Algeria, Kenya, Korea, and Iran. Can you dig it? I understand that. You can find this stuff anywhere. That's how you make your bombs with what you got in your house, what you got, what you can get from a store. You're not going to order plastic explosives from some fucking... And be traced. And be traced back. Like, then you're fucking toast, you know? It reminds me of... I don't think I've ever brought this up on the show before, but the greatest Wikipedia article I have ever read... And probably because of the FBI, it was altered years ago. So if anyone comes across on the Wayback Machine a version of the Wikipedia entry for Booby Trap, if you read it, you will know what I mean. It basically was this giant... So at the top, it's like a definition of what booby traps are and a history of the term and some examples of medieval booby traps and you're like oh this is a cool history lesson and then it gets into the Viet Cong and it gives you this like breakdown of how to build Viet Cong traps with illustrations and how to build like after that then it talks about domestic terrorism and urban terrorism And there was this whole section on Molotov cocktails, of course, and another section on it's like all stuff he says in the movie, like a section on where you can buy these things without attracting attention and another section on like backpack bombs and where to place them in a building if you're trying to level certain floors. It was the craziest thing I've ever read on the And internet. I love how, like, booby traps is, like, the most innocuous place to put that kind of stuff. You know, like, I'd imagine there'd be some, like, sketchy shit in, like, the Wikipedia entry for pipe bombs or something. But, like, booby traps, that's fucking Home Alone. You know what I'm saying? That's, like, Daniel Stern and Bushwhacked or something. That's, that's... <laughs> I'm setting booby traps. Booby traps. That's what I said, Sam. I'm setting booby traps in case of anybody's following us. I can put toys so we can hear them coming. When I was a kid, my dad took me to uh, Sam's Club, and in the cheap PC games, there was a game called SWAT 2. It was $10, and I got <laughs> it. And like, I didn't play the story mode, because there was like a, like a, a custom game mode thing, where you could either play as the SWAT team or the crazy militant group. 
And the militant wow. group, you, you take over a building, you put booby traps in, you take hostages and stuff. And every time I'd play it, it would be the same. I'd set up my host- like set up my booby traps, take my hostages, execute everybody, and then we all killed ourselves <laughs> after a shootout with the cops. They don't make games like this. Yeah, it was called man. SWAT 2. It was like this really cheap game. I'd spoot hours just doing that over and over again and ever since you just started talking about booby traps it just like jumped back into my brain i wonder if that's still out i wonder if that's like a cult game that people still play probably but i feel like the the point here is how like readily available some of this is and like yes he went through the cia training course and learned how to become an intelligence agent but like so for the book club this month, we're reading France Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, which is incredible. Highly recommend you read along with us. And before he became a revolutionary, he started out as a psychiatrist and talks about how groups like the CIA and other intelligence agencies around the world almost always use psychiatrists to teach their agents how to torture people, like what areas to target, but also how you as an individual can withstand torture on a physiological level and psychological. And so he's like, of course, I would use that to train people. And so it just, it's like this amazing combination of specialized knowledge being applied in the right way, which is the whole sort of thing behind the spook who sat by the door. But a lot of it is just finding out how to educate yourself and using your community resources. Yeah. It's like the whole movie is they all work together pretty seamlessly. That's that's what's so nice is that like after the training begins and it's all done through the guise of him working at a social services office. Yeah, by day. By he's, day. He's like a yeah. fancy middle class social worker totally totally and but when like the training begins and you can just see how this gang called the cobras how they start to operate with each other in ways where like one person is like down on the ground other person runs by and the guy who's on the ground throws a gun up to him they make the shot they throw the and like it's like they're all just working together in these ways that are like like a sports team or someone who is so used to they're just in affinity with each other perfectly and and that stuff is is so inspiring that like and and later when they have that riot scene where where there's a riot that that happens because i believe a young black girl is gunned down by police or or something like that probably the police yeah it's the shot in the back while running away by the police yes So, so true to life yes so there is a riot going on and the freedom fighters, the Cobras, they all kind of use this moment to do some other real destruction. They're, they're blowing up buildings there. They're using their all their shit. And, and this leads to the National Guard coming in. And it sets up this very, very intense standoff with the freedom fighters and the National Guard where the freedom fighters... They have the upper hand the entire time against them because the National Guard does not expect this level of pushback. Or organization. Or, or, or organization, or... for sure. And that... 
I think it's something that also kind of ties into Vietnam, where they know the terrain, you know. Yep. Oh and, yes. And I always wondered while well, watching the Revolution, um, wasn't like most of draftees to Vietnam black? Wasn't it like disproportionately like there are black kids? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was disproportionately poor people, right? Because right. they were the ones who couldn't find a way to buy their buy their way out of it, or like get into some fancy paid university or something, or like pay off a doctor to say they have bone spurs or or something like that. So yeah, and that is majority people of color. Because that's what it reminded me of a lot was just like reading about the VC who's like, yeah, they didn't have all the cool tech, but they knew the jungle. And I think that it's so hard, even when you are someone who is interested in revolutionary politics, when you when you study revolutions in be it Cuba or Vietnam and, and places like that, Burkina Faso, you cannot really, as as an American studying them, you can't imagine that in the U.S. or or how these tactics can translate in American cities or in American suburbs or or, or places like that because. They're so such different worlds, it seems. And this movie just perfectly shows you, like, no, these tactics can be used in the city and can be used in places that you understand. And and to see it, to actually see it, is why I think this movie was so... Uh, Hated by the FBI? Yeah. <laughs> this movie, the reason why it's it's so rare and, like, isn't talked about all the time because it's such an incredible movie is because it basically, it came out, it would play for a weekend, and then the theaters would be visited by, you know, some men in black who are like, yeah, you're, I think we should, you should pull this movie. And they would pull the movie and oftentimes destroy the print. Yeah, I think on past episodes, we've talked about this fake idea that in the West, in capitalist countries, there's this thing called freedom. So you can make your movie without any censorship. And it's such a clear example of how bullshit that idea is. Yeah, even when they lie. were when they were shooting this movie, funding kept drying up. They kept losing funding. And and originally they had United Artists behind them. And what they wound up doing that's really, really funny is they would show them scenes of like cars blowing up and a couple of the characters like talking jive and they were selling it to people like it was just another one of these super popular black exploitation movies like it was going to be like you know super another fly. super fly or the mac or you know yeah some like fun rudy ray moore kind of fucking flick just so they can get the money they need to make their fucking revolutionary film and this whole thing it really started from the novel, which I cannot wait to read, by Sam Greenlee. Who had basically the same problem, like couldn't get it published in the no, U.S. No, and You had to go to England, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then like once it started getting out there, it became this book that was just passed around through, I mean, like the Black Panthers, like they read it, they loved it. It was just this like wonderful book that was inspiring so many people that when it came time to make the movie, a lot of the people who were involved in the film, the actors, I mean, were people who read the book, identified with the politics of the film. So this became, 
it, it's like how the last two movies we were talking about were personal films for like one man. This felt like a personal film for the entire community, for everyone that was involved, which is great because it's about solidarity you know when we had the all the like the the marches like in in like philly where like everybody got tear gas and stuff if this movie had like a 4k release and one of those like released in theaters again things like we just saw tombs of the blind dead and that was doing its tour this movie would have done fucking bonkers box office i feel yeah i think like I think people today would identify, would love it. I think it's just waiting to be seen by like another generation. Totally. It feels so undated in yeah, a crazy it does. way. It, it, it probably never will be dated, so, unfortunately. Which is a horrible thought. Do you think that if like the FBI didn't railroad this movie and intimidate theater operators and destroy the prints, I mean, do you think that the spook who sat by the door would have had like a huge cultural impact, like especially as a recruitment tool for Black Panther groups and like radical black nationalist groups? Yeah, I think it might like have burned out after a bit. I think like after a while when something's like that strong, eventually it it goes into like, like been there, done that kind of thing. Like nobody takes it serious anymore after 10 years because it's sort of like... Well, I think you also have to ask, so the reason why the movie was so persecuted, I think, is the same reason why the Black Panthers themselves were so persecuted. So I think it would be a very different world, set of circumstances, whatever, if they weren't like hounded to death by the FBI because I, I feel like to me the censure of this movie and its removal from theaters and the destruction of prints is just like a small example of what the FBI were trying to do to the Black Panthers. Well yeah this it was like this movie was another one of their hits. It was like an assassination job they were doing. Obviously you know destroying the prince of a film is very different than like you know getting martin luther king to be assassinated and not uh, but, even just but it's a cultural example it is it's an example of what they were capable of doing which is you know silencing things not just and black panthers though but people around like wasn't the actress from breathless like driven to suicide by the fbi she was a black panther supporter yeah yeah gene seberg and even they killed her dog, I think. Yeah, it, and they like tormented her for months. It, and she already had problems with depression, and they just like isolated her, and it was psychological torture. Yeah, and and, and it's like because that's what they're trained to do, and and, and that's what it is that they do is. But I, I also I feel like it's tempting to see them and the cia as these all powerful yeah but i think really they're just a tool of a deeply white supremacist government that even even now when you know we have this democratic president and the democratic party makes all of these gestures towards being liberal and progressive and it's really just like a hat they wear you know i i bet the democrats are going to come out big 
against any kind of contraception ban. Like, oh, we're never going to take away birth control and condoms. But, you know, we'll meet everyone else in the middle here and but we'll like, get rid of abortions. Really need abortions? You know? Yeah, we're going to get rid of abortions. Autonomy over Can your you own body? imagine how outraged Pete Buttigieg would be if he watched the spook who sat at the door? Yeah, oh my God. He would explode like fucking scanners. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I want to talk about how fucking awesome the title of this movie is. You know, so when I first heard it, I actually was like, oof, yikes. Yes, you know? like certain Fred Williamson movie titles that yeah. I'm not going to uh, say. Boss. Yes. <laughs> Which will, we really want to do a Fred Williamson episode and we can talk about it there, but it's like I want to feel like I can say a movie title, but also ah, not that it one. feels inappropriate. Not well, that one. I, I saw it, so uh, I was in a Sears uh, years ago and they had like their little DVD section and they had a, a black cinema collection and that movie was on there but just called The Boss yeah well that that, 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 that's title. that's what the DVD title is now but the thing is about the spook who sat by the door was I didn't realize that spook uh, had two meanings I only knew it as a racial slur which apparently comes from this like late 1800s early 1900s like bit of a uh, racist prejudiced idea that black people were afraid of ghosts or something but fucking white people are afraid of ghosts too apparently especially like especially in the 1800s yeah but there's like a scene in birth of a nation where blah 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 i don't know apparently that's where this the the term comes from and i never knew that spies and cia agents were also called spooks so that's what i knew and like I and you didn't know the slur. I like that's funny. I that... thought it might be a slur, but it's like when you hear people on television who are white supremacists, like they don't really use that as a slur from, or even on the street. I knew both from reading spy fiction and having racist parents. There you so go. I was, I was ahead <laughs> of a curve. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that double entendre was not lost on you. You found out in the country how difficult range estimation is. But in the city, the problem simplified. A city block is 250 yards north to south, 150 yards east to west. The lampposts are standard 30 yards. So we got reference points all over. Right. And since the buildings act as a funnel for the wind, you can fire on zero windage. Now, run it down to the sniper teams, and I'll be in my pad all night if you need me. Cool, Terry. Okay. Something, though, speaking of the book... And Sam Greenlee's issue getting it published. I was thinking about this earlier when I was so I was reading about Melvin Van Peebles and some of his struggle to get work as an artist and make films. And it was basically the same situation where he left the country in order to have a career and went to Mexico and happened to run into Amos Vogel, who is, if you don't know his name, I'm sure we'll talk about him at some point, but he basically helped kind of revolutionize conversations around what is avant-garde cinema and who are underrated filmmakers that we should celebrate. And he saw one of Melvin Van Peebles' shorts and said like, oh my God, you have to go to France. You have to go talk to all of these people there they're gonna love your movies and so he pretty much had to go to france to get any 
recognition for his short films and to write novels. And so like he could only come back here after he had already found that success elsewhere to make Sweet Sweet Back. And it's just like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So I I didn't realize this until earlier when we were when I was doing research for for the episode. So uh Melvin Van Peebles, I always assumed that his first film was Sweet Sweetback. It it's it's so experimental. Like the shots are it's they're insane choices that are made that are like they just like scream like first time experimental filmmaker, like almost like Jimmy Wang Yu. Right. Well, I, I think they're his first film in the sense that he's completely like away from Total the studio. Oh, he's off, yeah. off yeah. the fucking leash. But have either of you seen Watermelon Man? No, I'm aware of it, but yeah. no, I have not seen it. Same. It's I've heard it's awesome. great. Oh, it's so fucking good. It's like fucking Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, but like instead of turning into a fucking insect, this like white guy turns into a black guy in the morning. He just wakes up as a black guy. And like he's like a racist guy to begin with. And it feels like a studio movie that like the studio was just like, yeah, go ahead, do whatever you want. Like we don't care. But can you imagine having both? for Melvin and Sam Greenlee like I can't imagine the strength of character and imagination it takes to allow your brain to operate creatively outside such a repressive system and make the work of art that you want to make and find a way to bring it into the world when there are so many things working against you. Totally. Yeah. Including the FBI. Yeah. And it's, it's almost like a testament to how, how fucking good a movie like the spook who sat by the door is, is if you made a movie and your intent was to make something truly revolutionary, not superficially revolutionary, but like truly something that can inspire the overthrow of the fucking U.S. government. Are we allowed to say that on a podcast? <laughs> we can say anything we want, baby. I no guess we're not telling people to do it directly. We got like 30 fucking listeners. It's fine. I'm sure they all already know how to make Molotov cocktails. You just pour a little bit of sauce just, just into watch, the bottle. And the... Watch the Ukrainian news. You'll learn all about it. Yeah, hell yeah. But I guess what I'm saying is uh, the fact that this movie was so repressed and fucking just like shuffled away so quickly the only reason why it it exists is because the director ivan dixon saved the negatives and like basically labeled them something different and put them away in a vault and that's why the movie exists but like what a way to know that you succeeded in doing what you set out to do and making a revolutionary piece of of art when the fucking fbi is like yeah mm mm-mm and fucking shuts it all down and ruins your life. Like, Sam Greenlee's life after this, and even Ivan Dixon's life after this, they never had any other real opportunities. Ivan Dixon did a little bit because he was such a great actor. Well, he was he was a big TV director. He went yeah. on, uh, like, he even did, like, Quantum Leap. And, yeah. Um, but uh, 
This was his, he only made three feature films. This Trouble Man, I don't know what the other one is. Trouble Man's neat. I can't wait to see Trouble Man. I've been wanting to it's for a while. It's not nearly as political as this. Not from where it's been a few years, but it's like a cool black exploitation private eye flick. I mean, we were watching this documentary about the spook who sat by the door, and my favorite line is, and there are so many great interviews in it, but my favorite line is at the end. When Sam Greenlee basically explains that, like, the FBI pretty much ruined his life and he was depressed and bitter for a long time. Homeless. Yeah. And then he realized. I paid my dues, but it was worth it. I don't have any major regrets. I went through a period of depression and bitterness. I wrote myself out of that. I finally had to recognize I had a right to be bitter, you know. I've rattled a cage. And so what do I expect? Is that the kind of response I've got? And the paranoid hysteria only confirms that I did something that was worth, worthwhile. You know, if they'd given me an Academy Award, I'd have to figure out what I did wrong. I think he's also very proud of the fact that he's been able to live his life through the oppression that has been heaped upon him because of this movie book. I'm triumphant. Don't see no blues for me because I sing my own. And for this man, the blues are freedom songs. Okay. Wait a minute. This just means that I succeeded beyond my wildest imaginings because like if they gave me an Academy Award and it had that much mainstream success, like what would he have done wrong? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That that's also generally how I feel about Hollywood movies. It's like the m- bigger they are in award season and the more praise they get, the more just like milk toast and tepid and ineffectual they are. Yeah, they're uh, they're they're terrible. Award season is like the most. I'd I'd prefer like watching like the Transformers movies over like those award season fucking. Like you got to see the softball like. Let's pretend that you know we're concerned about poor people. Bullshit. Uh. Sorry, this is kind of off topic. Do you know where uh, I know Ivan Dixon from? From where? There's a Twilight episode. I'm sorry. <laughs> One he's of the Twilight werewolf. books. Yeah, yeah, he's the werewolf. He directed this <laughs> Twilight part two. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's an episode of the Twilight Zone, and it's like one of my all-time favorites. It's I Am the Night, Color Me Black. Do you remember this episode? No, I do not. This is the one where uh, there's this there's this guy who's on death row, and in the morning he's gonna be hanged, and it's nighttime, and like all the townspeople are like waiting for for dawn because the guy's gonna get his fucking hanged, and like the guy's like professing his innocence. He's talking to this this reverend, this preacher guy, and the preacher guy is played by Ivan Dixon, and basically like what the little twist is sorry everybody is dawn never comes the night never ends like it just keeps going and going because like the guy's like innocent and like you know 
and then it oh, ends. Oh, I was just thinking that's like the ultimate torture in a way. Or, yeah, or he's waiting just like waiting, yeah. waiting forever for death. And like it ends with fucking, oh my God, what's our fucking boy's name? Rod Serling? Yeah, Rod Serling shows up and he says this shit that's like a sickness, sickness known as hate. hate. Not a virus, not a microbe, not a germ, but a sickness nonetheless. Highly contagious, deadly in its effects. Don't look for it in the twilight zone. Look for it in the mirror. Look for it in the mirror. Wow. And it's like so fucking cool. It's such a great episode. He's also in an Outer Limits episode about brain surgery, like brain swapping. <laughs> That's sick. Yeah. It's like the opposite of face off. <laughs> brain off. <laughs> you know, switch brains. <laughs> you know what's funny? That, that reminds me, in the 70s, there were like two-headed man movies. And yes. There, and there was one where it's like a, a white racist has like a black dude's head stuck on his shoulder. Isn't it Ray Milland? It might be. I know there's a few two-headed men. I know, like the incredible two-headed transplant, and yeah, the thing no. with two heads. I think yeah, that's yeah. the one with the racist. That sounds the well, thing with two heads is the one with the racist. That plot line is so fun. Well, it started from like it is Raymond. I yeah. was right. Uh, what, oh, I mean, Ray what's the original one where it's two convicts that are like? It's like Tony Curtis. Or, yeah, and, yeah. And, um, it, is like it Sidney Poirier? It might. I might, might just be, be. thinking that because sure. he was like the only black guy they hired for fifteen years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, amazingly, the thing with two heads was directed by Lee Frost. Oh, he did hell yeah! Black Gestapo and Love Camp Seven, and basically like created the Nazi exploitation subgenre. Oh yeah, our Lee Frost episode is hell yeah! It's coming. It's got to be. Oh, remember the Scavengers, John? Remember the Scavengers? Were you there for that? Was that your weird X Fest? Uh, yeah. yeah, yes. Yeah. The Defiant Ones is the movie you're thinking of. Oh, the Defiant Ones is the one where the people are are chained up. Yeah, and it is Tony Curtis. And Sydney Poitier. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you know, you can fucking... We're on a roll here. <laughs> you don't even got to go in your memory banks. Just fucking, you know, use context clues here. Okay, okay. I know, like, we're probably winding down, but I've, I would feel terrible if we did not bring up how fucking good Lawrence Cook is in this movie. Oh, yes, you're right. And just, like, uh, quiet intensity? Is that a good description? Oh, my goodness. Yes. He- uh, very perfect. unassuming, but like also inspiring. Like yes, he has so much range within the film because he's he's playing to different audiences, like not watching the film, but different audiences that he's performing to. Yes, and like when he explains how uh, a black man can go anywhere in this world with a mop bucket and a uniform walking around and you'll be invisible well and then he says and a black man who's smiling is invisible and like and and he's just he's so brilliant in the way that he can convey these these tactics along with these revolutionary ideas to so many different people in so many different situations and his friend uh the cop who he becomes friends with. Well, they're already friends. They were already friends. And he yeah. wants to kind of take them on his side. Yes. And because... I think that's one of the things where like this movie gets pretty like deep into like the whole like, uh, like instruction manual where it's shows you that people who you think would be on your side aren't, uh, you know, it's not just like, Oh, we're going to have like this black cop, but yeah, he's a cop, but like, he's actually all right. 
And it's like, no, like under capitalism, anybody can sell out. And it does a really interesting job at exploring why not all black people are automatically like i i feel like it's pretty realistic about that it's not just like every person he talks to is immediately like yes let's blow up the government it's like especially the people who are middle class or bougie in some way like his girlfriend that he's dating they're so content to argue away why things just are the way they are and there's yes. the status quo and like fighting back and being violence not the right answer either but the other thing that really amazes me about this movie is there are so many movies about the counterculture it, throughout the 70s that i you know wish we still had today but obviously we don't and so many movies that feature gangs and in the majority of movies with gangs, even if the, they're like groups of revolutionaries, they almost always show internal dissent. Like the, the gang starts off as, oh, it's this, we're here to protect each other with family. Like you even see it in something like Switchblade Sisters. But I think the movies generally focus a lot on internal jealousy and power squabbles and the gang fighting against each other. But in the Pinky Violence movies and in Spook Who Sat by the Door, there's just this way more unified sense. Yeah, a level of solidarity and camaraderie. And respect. And, and that comes with having a vision and having a plan and understanding uh, that if the person who is calling the shots is is killed, you know, or, or someone is killed, they will adjust ranks and they like it's the operation is going to continue on without, you know, without them, that they're, they're part of something bigger. They're part of this big project that they're willing to fight for they're willing to die for and it's like and that's the kind of mentality you need in a revolution and also, to fight a guerrilla war but having people where like having a good healthy community is more important than having the nice apartment with those cool statues yes yeah. and i yeah. i think that's a big part of the implication here is that it's in a way very against conventional american values because he's not like none of them are trying to figure out how this joining this revolutionary group can help them advance in life it's about how can you strengthen your community and lift it up from centuries of just suffering and abuse yeah it's it's amazing how i don't think this movie says uh words like socialism or marxism or communism or or anything like that pretty clear though yeah they don't they don't say the isms that they show that building the community i mean but they just show you like oh you build communities you support each other you do these things that don't involve money or if you do get money you get it by fucking stealing it from the man or you get it by stealing it from like you know uh, the banks, the institutions where, you know, you can continue to finance your revolution. And 
And to see all this shit done in a fucking movie that, like you were saying earlier, John, where this feels like a playbook or like this is what you look at, like when you want to see like this what to do. F- this feels like what hillbillies think critical race theory is, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got some fucking critical race theory for you here. It's this movie. This is this is what they're playing in elementary yeah. schools yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, in guerrilla warfare, the winning is in not losing. When you sleep on the floor, you can't fall out of bed. Then what we trying to do, man? Fight Whitey to a standstill. Force him to make a choice between the two things which he seems to dig most of all. There is no way that the United States can police the world and keep us on our ass too, unless we cooperate. When we revolt, we reduce it to a simple choice. Whitey finds out he can't make either. Well, the Cobras is ready. What about the other brothers and sisters out there on the streets? Their choice is when we start. If they don't follow our program and turn us into the cops, we lose in a week. But if they support us, yeah, then it's hit, run, harass, and hound, and we can paralyze this country. Yeah, right. Training has started already in nine cities. Five groups is combat ready. Plus us. Right. And by next summer, we should be able to hit the 10 largest urban complexes in the United States. She. He reminds you know, people throw arrows at me every time I say this, or sling arrows at me, whatever the saying is. But I never watched that Breaking Bad show. Me neither. I've seen it. It's been in pop culture enough where, like, I've, I know, you know, things. And he reminds me of... Who's the villain with the glasses who runs, like, the fast food company? Oh, but he's really the... Uh, Gus Fring. He has that, like, very intelligent but sort of well, unassuming... Because he, yeah, he he's doing a front. As soon as Dan Freeman gets out of the CIA, uh, the very next scene is, this is like, his CIA bosses basically saying, okay, we're going to wiretap his phones, we're going to do this, we'll keep watching him. And he knows that. He knows where he's going. He's going to be watched. So in knowing that, he just builds the perfect cover. And it's just, it's it's so, it's so brilliant. I like he's how, so like, smooth about the whole thing. But that's, yeah, like when he's done with the with the um, CIA, he his glasses are off, his walk is different, like everything. Yeah, it, oh, oh, for sure. It's, but it's, sure. So, it's cool. so subtle, though. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that is why he's like a perfect spy is because you put him anywhere and he doesn't stick out. He just blends in, you know, anywhere. It's it's so fucking cool. Uh, but there's even one good scene where when he's talking to his girlfriend, there's a temporary sort of crack in the facade. And she's like, whoa, you've never said any of this revolutionary shit like since we were in college years ago. Yeah. And which the same- gives you an idea that he figured out in college that if he wants to be successful, he needs to Shush. sacrifice his ego yes. and just learn and watch and wait and play the long For game. For sure. And, and 
he does the same thing with Dawson, the the cop too. Like yeah. that one time he loses his cool. But, yeah, but that you can conversation tell, with him and the cop is is terrific. But at the same time, like I don't think it's really him cracking because he is trying to get those two on his side. Yes, he is. He's trying to recruit them, just as he recruited the members of from from the street gang Cobra, and and, and the same way that he's built this huge operation that is spreading from Chicago to L.A to philadelphia to new york to all these cities that are like sprint like sending out different branches doing the exact same thing where they find a new gang but he yeah he wants to keep pulling in people from everywhere from every walk of life which is why he's going for his like his partner and and one of his best friends who is a cop but he seems to also know on some level that it's not going to succeed yeah Yes, which is why he doesn't quite give up the game too much, but he does enough where they put together all the pieces and they figure out, oh, you are the guy who's been... Batman? You're Batman, yeah. (laughs) Or the dang Joker. I can't see him trying to fight the army. Do you mind fighting the police? Yeah. I've never seen him like that. Maybe that badge has put distance between you and them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I forgot. The pigs over here and the people over there. And never the twain shall meet, huh? Hey, man, I grew up down here, too. And I know these people. Now, there were some good people out there in the streets the last few nights. Not just hoodlums, like they say in the newspapers. In a scene like this, anybody can get involved. But that's only going to make it worse. We have to maintain law and order, or we might as well be back in the jungles. <laughs> Dollars, the ghetto is a jungle, always has been. Understand? You cannot cage people like animals and not expect them to fight back someday. It has always been an army occupation here, with police badges and uniforms. Huh? You and me, a cop and a social worker, we are keepers of this goddamn zoo. The streets have to be safe. Safe for who? You're here to protect property, not lives. Well, that's what it's all about, isn't it? You worked hard to get what you got, didn't you? And you want to keep it just like I do? Bullshit. Listen, you think because you got a badge and I got a couple of degrees, that makes a difference? Do you know what white folks call people like you and me in private? Niggas, dogs. Niggas. Hey, hey, hey. I've heard you talk like that since we were in college. Have you guys seen Posse? When it first came out in like the 90s, right? Right? Yes, yes. So Posse is this Western from the 90s that I saw on TV at some point that I would love to rewatch. Mario Van Peebles directed it. It's mostly black actors and isn't billy zane like the bad guy i, I want to say so. it's billy zane and lawrence cook is in it too oh wow I-, I was just thinking how i want to see more films with him in it because i don't recognize him and he is so good like you can't take your eyes off him he's in a columbo episode we're gonna have to watch Billy Zane. You know about my love for Columbo. Oh, I do. Billy Zane is in it. Oh, Woody Strode's in it. I love Woody Strode. Everybody loves fucking Woody Strode. He's so fucking cool. And of course, Stephen Baldwin. Yeah, is Stephen Baldwin the one that lost his mind? Well, they're all 
kind of crazy. The Baldwin's. Uh, yes, he's the yes he's the biodome one that's really big into Jesus now. But that's Stephen Baldwin. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Stephen okay, Baldwin Stephen is Baldwin. in Posse, but it Ooh. has this wild cast with like Tone Loke and Tiny Lister, R.I.P. Pam and, Greer and Pam Greer, Isaac Hayes. Yeah, everybody. Big Daddy Kane. The we'll talk about this, I'm sure, on another episode more. But I find that '90s revival of black exploitation. And like black, like mild black revolutionary themed movies to be really interesting. Oh, I also do too. I think, uh, like a lot of them kind of came after Jackie Brown, which I think doesn't really feel like a black exploitation movie. It just feels like a Quentin Tarantino movie with, yeah. with like black actors and some like seventy yeah, songs. I mean, in. it's his like Elmore Leonard adaptation, and it feels like that. Yeah, for sure. But I, I, I do like that. That 90s revival. What was that one um, that I haven't seen that I really want to see? Original Gangsters? Yeah, I want to see that so bad. Larry Cohen movie? I yeah. almost did what you did that one episode and said that Leonard Cohen movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the um, There's one that I saw when it came out, and I was just wanted to see it because it was a Bank Robert movie. Um, it pro- and most of it went over my head because I was like nine. But I think watching it again, like today... What's the movie? Dead Presidents. We were just talking oh, about that. Yeah, yeah, I feel like with adult eyes, I'll see a lot more. Yeah, of, that, that definitely movie. fits into that that mold. It has like sure. Vietnam scenes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, I should rewatch that too. I remember not also not loving it when I was a kid. Because I just thought it was like, oh, it's going to be bank robbers. And, totally. Yeah, yeah. And, and then I, it's more than yes, that. Yes, a lot more. But uh, it's also... we. I don't know why this has been coming up in conversation so often lately, but I also, I feel like we keep talking about New Jack City and doing an episode on Fuck that. Yeah. There's so many great 90s movies. There shockingly are. <laughs> there really are. Yeah, yeah. It, all, except for like all the genres I loved as a kid. And yes. then like when like my tastes, you know. When yeah. your taste changed, you yeah. realize, oh, there are things yes. here. Yeah, if you don't think about the horror genre, you're, right. you're good. You're good. Unless you get down with that full moon shit. All right. Is there anything else you guys want to touch on with the spook who sat by the door? Uh, highly recommended. Yeah. So this was both your first watches. That's, yes. This yes. is such a crazy flip. Usually I'm the one who didn't see any of the movies or like, you know. Yeah, but it's great. And I don't know. I I think it's had a DVD release, but it yeah. it really deserves like a nice blu-ray release with uh, yeah lots I'm, I'm, and it, it lots does. of special i'm saying features. like one of those restorations where they do a tour in every city you know with yeah. it I, I i bet you it would fucking kill. oh my god yeah if i had a fucking movie theater my own movie theater spooky sat by a door would play every fucking wednesday night <laughs> sort of related question do you think so we didn't really talk about the black panthers much even though this movie is, I think, clearly supposed to be a Black Panther movie. Oh, yeah, for sure. And part of what made them so incredible is not just the the violence that, like, most people think about, or at least, like, on a mainstream level. Yeah, the, the armed, the images of, of armed, well-dressed black men standing on the steps of the Capitol. I think what really made them great is their community organization and the way that they were able to provide 
all these social support systems for Food. people. Yeah, they they basically had a, a free kitchen that you can just go to and eat anytime. And they would pass out their leaflets and they would be there like, you know, teaching people about like what it is that they were doing while providing free food. And that shit was shut down so fast. Well, and there are like children's programs yeah. where oh. they would help you do your homework and make sure you got to school on time and have yep. food. And and so I guess my my question is, I know that like they lasted probably 15 years before they were finally well brutalized y- y- by yes, the FBI. They still exist, but it's it's in a very limited capacity. They're not nearly as organize or just they're they're not as prominent as they were before but there are like the new black panther party and there's different subsets of the black panther party there's even like sanctioned offshoots for white people there's like white panthers that are like part of the black panthers too well i remember they do still exist like fred hampton was like didn't he like invite white people to like hear like speeches and even get involved with things? Yeah, and and he was very like inclusive. And there was that scene in the film where one character just shouts like, "I hate white people!" Basically, like in in no uncertain terms, that's what he says. And Dan Freeman immediately replies with like, "This is not about hate white folks." It's about love and freedom enough to die or kill for it if necessary. Now you're gonna need more than hate to sustain you when this thing begins. Now if you feel that way, you're no good to us and you're no good to yourself. You ever kill a man, Willie? No. I have in Korea. And when you spill a man's guts in the gutter, you see how fast hate disappears, unless you like killing, and I don't think you will. Now some of the cobras will, stud will. Why studs? Because he's a killer. He doesn't know it yet, but he is. It's not about hate. If you are operating just on hate, you are going to fail. You are going to burn out, and it's you're never going to find success. Yeah, it's not about revenge. It's yeah, it's not about revenge. It's about getting your freedom by any means necessary. And it's like, even as like a white male, like who couldn't fucking relate to that, you know? I mean, so my question was like, because we're not really have progressed very far beyond what's going on in the spook who sat by the door, I guess my question slash hope is like do you think there will ever be room for another black panther level movement i think so i think like kids today what's the current generation called i'm i know who I'm, fucking yeah, cares whatever, just gen- say it, I, I think they are a much more on this shit than like gen x like i think every generation's more aware of how fucked up things are i think like the internet is a good thing like we see like police brutality more we we get more access to things most people who like are ride or die with like white america are fucking boomers who are like all getting coveted out but <laughs> you know like i'm just saying like i i i mean i don't want to sound like super optimistic i just feel like each generation 
earlier, like even like in high school and middle school, are learning like, oh, this is a fucking fucked up system. But I think, I mean, I'm also very optimistic that that there will be a multicultural, multiracial group of radical Americans who work in solidarity with other countries and, and other groups to teach each other the kinds of tactics necessary. But like, like you were saying, John, with, with the internet is that I think a lot of people feel like they get the, the sense that they're doing those things just by typing or just by arguing on Facebook or, or something that, that it almost prevents them from doing the real thing the real kinds of organizations and training that you need to do, like how to fire guns. To, yes, you know. but at the same time, like when a lot of people who are against that are dying off and when Joe Average, while not like somebody who's like takes it to the streets, is just somebody who's like, yeah, the CIA is evil. And when that guy just becomes your average Joe, I think there will be a, a, an inevitable change. I. It'll be slow, and it'll probably only happen during, like, the food wars when the climate crisis is, like, at its height. Yeah, but they're starting right now. Like, there's a shortage of, at a time when Republicans are calling for the overthrow of abortion rights and birth control, there's a formula shortage and, like, babies can't eat. Also, we're talking about a a, um, movie about, like, organizing black people to like stand up for themselves that got like shut down by the FBI around the same when was it last week when a white supremacist who went like had his mind melted by the internet shot up a bunch of people uh, black people in a fucking in a supermarket grocery store and filmed it so that like his other fucking Pepe meme nerd virgins could watch and the the fucking media like the way that he's described in articles about it is like oh this oh, kid this poor, oh, always. This poor mentally ill teenager whereas they try to describe black teenagers as like this this extremely mature adult yeah and, and also <laughs> like, like what the he's fuck? gonna be put in like a prison within a prison so he's safe the same thing happened to remember the guy in new zealand who shot up like three mosques killed like 50 people he's in a prison within a prison so nobody can like beat him up in the shower yeah so, so like you even get white privilege in the fucking prison so obviously the the fight that was going on in the spook who sat by the door and in sweet sweet back and in top of the heat that fight's not over but uh it just sucks that we don't have these like militant groups to help educate people and yeah, bring support, and, 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 and to be on the vanguard of this thing. Because I I don't see any kind of like radical leftist vanguard that exists anywhere in this country, and it's so hard to build those things from the ground up. But it is it is not impossible. Step one: start a podcast. Do you think Neo? <laughs> But do you think neoliberalism uh, neo has like hijacked it? Where it's like, no, you, if you vote for fucking Hillary Clinton, you're everything like, that's will it. be fine. Yeah. Girl power. That's it. Yes, like it's repulsive. Oh, ah, just vote for fucking Hillary Clinton and shut up. <laughs> John, you got any shout outs? Uh, no. Whoo. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Honestly, that's a great end of the episode. Can we just end it there? Sure. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, fuck talking about it, the Patreon. It, it wasn't even like, nah. It was just a very sudden, abrupt, <laughs> assertive. I was, no. I was searching my head, but no. Well, well, yeah, we should sell the Patreon. We have to do that. Every no, episode. it's fine. We're good. Okay. We don't have to do it every episode. Fuck that. And if you are on the Patreon, unsubscribe. Unsubscribe <laughs> now. So, yeah, donate it to, to your ra- local radical group. Yeah. We can, we, yeah. Yeah, I'm fine with that, actually. Yeah, donate $6 to your local <laughs> radical group and just watch the change come rolling in. <laughs> Sam, would you ever learn how to shoot a gun? I would like to. Hell yeah. How about you, Yancey? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, let's fucking learn how to shoot guns. When I, know, I worked hell, at the I... morgue, they were supposed to teach me. And where do we go to learn how to make bombs? Do we, like, is there like a school for that or something? You, can, you just have to Google booby trap. Booby traps. I, uh, I was taught how to shoot a rifle in Cub Scouts, of all things. Not Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts. You were a Cub Scout? I was a Cub Scout when I was like from like 8 to like 11. Damn, and look at you now. You look like like a bear. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And and it was like a BB gun, like the first year. And then they're like, okay, you can handle small, like a small rifle. Not like a six-year-old. We've leveled you up. Yeah. And like, yeah, I shot some balloons. Wow, that sounds more fun than being in the fucking Girl Scouts. I got kicked out for having tarot cards and reading books about the occult when I was like 12. That's terrible. (laughs) Yeah. What the hell? All right. So long, everybody.